Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Thanks for listening in again this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. I keep opening with that statement because each week I'm seeing the number of downloads increase. And so I do appreciate new listeners joining in, as well as those of you who've been with me the whole time or for most of the time, and you've been promoting the podcast and sharing it with colleagues, etc. So I do really appreciate that. Well, I have to say that was a disappointing Super Bowl as far as I'm concerned. I mean, unless you're a Buccaneers fan or a Tom Brady fan, and I am neither of those, um, it was a disappointing sort of event. It reminded me a little bit of the Super Bowls from the 1980s and the 1990s where they were almost always blowouts, almost always boring, and never really lived up to the hype, right? You really do have to marvel at what Tom Brady has accomplished. He is, without a doubt, one of the most accomplished professional athletes of all time. But I will go to my grave on this whole goat talk. Now, maybe Tom Brady is the greatest of all time, and you definitely can make an argument for that. But it's not because we can count to seven, okay? I know this is probably a minority opinion, uh, but the whole he's got seven rings is a ridiculous argument for what is universally considered the most complex position in sports. Now, as many of you have heard me say on this podcast several times, nuance doesn't sell. Nuance doesn't sell on social media, and nuance doesn't sell on SportsCenter, and nuance doesn't get headlines. Nuance doesn't allow me to use the goat emoji when I'm texting or posting. Again, to accomplish what he's accomplished at his age is phenomenal, honestly, and deserves the utmost respect, for sure. It's incredible. But is he the greatest of all time? Maybe, but it's not because we can count to seven. Let me give you another example. Here's an equivalent. I feel like I might have to do a, uh, a separate segment uh, on, on this in the future. I'm doing this now because I don't have a sports segment on the, uh, on the pod, but I'm going to do it anyway. Wayne Gretzky is the most dominant professional athlete of my lifetime. Uh, Here is one of the many astonishing statistics about Wayne Gretzky in the National Hockey League. Wayne Gretzky amassed 2,857 points in his career. He scored 894 goals and added 1,963 assists. Now, if you erased Wayne Gretzky's goals, all of them, all 894 goals, and just left him with his 1,963 assists, which means he'd have 1,963 points, he would still be 76 points ahead of the second leading scorer in NHL history. That's a goat. One problem. Wayne Gretzky ranks 107th in all-time Stanley Cup championships. Ask anyone who the greatest of all time in hockey is, and you'll probably get one of four answers from most individuals. It's Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, Gordie Howe, or Bobby Orr. Those are probably the four dominant names. There might be others, but those are pretty much the four dominant names. Gordie Howe ranks 65th in Stanley Cup championships. Gretzky, of course, 107th. Okay. Bobby Orr, 303rd all-time, and Mario Lemieux, 359th all-time in Stanley Cup championships. Now, I'm not sure what the NHL record books uh, tie-breaking system is, because there's a lot of different players that have the same number of championships, but there you have it. Those are the four considered the greatest hockey players of all time, and none of them even rank in the top 10 in terms of championships. So why? Why is this one position in this one sport judged so simply 
And yet every other position in every other sport, it's judged with maybe not basketball, but in almost every other case, the greatest of all time is not judged solely by rings. Is Charles Haley the second greatest NFL player of all time? Because after all, he has five championship rings. I think you understand my point. Now, again, Tom Brady might be the greatest quarterback of all time, but it's not because we can count to seven. Okay, it's such an oversimplified argument. A more oversimplified argument could not be made. That that's for sure. So uh, stay tuned for a future sports segment on the uh, on the podcast. Honestly, um, that's something that uh, look. It's an opinion. So you can say I'm wrong. I can say you're wrong, and that's just how we're going to have to land it because your opinion is is your opinion. So. And, and coming out of the Super Bowl, let me also just say, like Bernie Sanders, can we all just use the weekend halftime memes for maybe one or two days and then and then let it go? Please, for the love of God, okay? If the weekend and goats are occupying my timeline this week, I may have to press pause on social media for a while because <laughs> I don't know if I could take it. Um, anyway, as always... Uh, Thanks. Thanks for indulging me on that one. As always, uh, you're listening and subscribing to the podcast uh, means a ton. And I really do appreciate the support. Uh, again, if you feel up to spreading the word on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever, I would really appreciate that too. Today, I'm super excited because I have Jay McTie joining me for the interview. We're going to discuss designing authentic performance tasks and projects and all that entails. And it, we have a really great conversation about that. In assessment corner this week, I'm going to explore the idea of assessing creativity and how we can assess creativity without stifling creativity. So that's the plan for today. Let's get to it. My conversation with Jay McTie is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by talking about the strange relationship educators often have with research and offer a suggestion at the end to reconcile some of that tension. I'm going to begin with the, where's the research crowd? Now, if you've ever presented a professional learning opportunity or facilitated any workshops, then you know the scene. You've thought through your sequence of information and activities. You've been thorough and honest in your description of both what the idea or ideas are and what it will take for those ideas or strategies or systems to be implemented. And you've balanced a mix of research, application, and stories. But then, of course, bam. Someone near the back of the room, and they always seem to be at or near the back of the room for some reason, you get hit with the, where's the research? Many K-12 educators, from my experience, have an odd relationship with educational research. Now again, before I continue, a disclaimer. If what I'm about to say does not apply to you or your colleagues, then fantastic. I'm not even suggesting that what I'm about to say applies to most educators. The reason I'm even broaching this topic is because in my now almost 20 years of facilitating workshops and presentations, including the last decade of doing it full-time, I have seen and heard it enough to notice. And I use that expression a lot. It's enough to notice. So if this isn't you, then, then don't take it personally. The odd relationship many have with research is that when the research favors our position, then we assert that we need research-validated practices. 
When the research doesn't, we hear things like, I don't need research. I have my experience. And I've come to know that more often than not, where's the research is code for, I don't want to change. Now, of course, I'm not talking about practices and strategies that have no research behind them. We should be leery if there is no research foundation to what's being proposed. But so many times when I hear, where's the research, the irony is overwhelming. This happens often when I conduct workshops on grading specifically. I present the workshop, including a synthesis of the research, and I still hear, where's the research? Now, the irony is that those who are resistant to the change are likely using practices that have no research foundation. I'll hear, where's the research on standards-based grading? And I'll think to myself, and admittedly, sometimes I'll say it aloud to the person who's just asked me, I'll say, where's the research on what you're currently doing? Where, for example, is the research that shows that penalizing late work acts as a universal motivator? That penalizing late work provides a universal incentive for students to meet deadlines? I'll wait. That research doesn't exist, and yet here we are, clinging to non-research validated practices only because it came first, and then to have the audacity to ask, where's the research on what I'm presenting? Now, we can't give the status quo a free pass, but then demand an unreasonable level of scrutiny over the new. This is not just about assessment and grading, however. I mean, we love research when it backs us. We dismiss it when it contradicts our philosophy. Whenever somebody begins a sentence with, hey, Tom, it's my philosophy, I know that's really them saying, hey, Tom, I don't have any research to support or justify the opinion I'm about to express. If they had research, they wouldn't call it a philosophy. Now, I know that sounds a little cynical, but I have to say I'm almost always right. Now, I'm not talking about an overarching educational philosophy, okay? I'm talking specifically about philosophies of practice, so to speak. Now, very little in educational research is ironclad. There are always nuances and contextual issues that have to be considered. Now, our experience does matter. It matters a lot. But it's not the same as clinical research that looks at wide applicability. When I see or hear people say, and trust me, I've seen and heard both, I don't need research, I have my experience, I get a little worried. Again, neither extreme is helpful or productive. As many of you have heard me say before, teachers don't live in the orthodoxy of anything, so fidelity of implementation to the orthodoxy of what the research says can be nearly impossible. Now I'll get to that in a moment. At the same time, dismissing the research altogether because perfection is not possible is incredibly short-sighted. The challenge we have is that much of the educational research does not really happen in real school settings under real conditions with real outcome implications. And that's understandable. We can't just have researchers running around experimenting on students and finding out, oops, well, that didn't work. Sorry, 12-year-olds. That's five months of your learning you'll never get back. Now, one example of this comes from the research on feedback, which we know receives near unanimous support in the academic literature for increasing achievement. But having said that, Maria Ruiz Primo and Min Lee in 2013 pointed out a number of limitations to the research on feedback. And you'd, again, you'd think the way people talk about feedback on social media that it was absolute. But they point out a number of things, including 
that a high percentage of studies didn't use control groups, which means there could have been pre-existing conditions or differences between the students before the feedback treatment. They also point out that the confounding effects are rarely mentioned. So in many cases, feedback wasn't the only treatment that was implemented, and therefore the differences could have emerged as a result of something else. That most studies make no mention of the reliability and the validity of the instruments, and that issues of ecological validity prevent generalizability. So when you have high ecological validity, it it means that you can generalize to real-world settings. And because of that, they, they really prevented that. So there weren't really a lot of there wasn't really a lot of ecological validity in the studies. They also point out that a high percentage of studies focus on feedback in one experimental session. So what are the long-term effects? What is the longitudinal impact? Most feedback, for example, they point out specifically in math and science, provide little to no background guidance or direction about the specifics surrounding the activity. Many of the studies in general provided little information about the specifics of the tasks and or Many of the tasks were artificial themselves. So no wonder orthodoxy is not possible. The research itself doesn't replicate the real setting. But that's not an excuse to dismiss it. It's just recognizing and acknowledging the limitations. And being able to recognize and acknowledge these limitations is critical. It means talking in absolutes about almost anything in in education is almost always wrong. And I think this is really important for those of us who deliver workshops and professional learning opportunities. This part is essential to building and maintaining credibility. We can't exaggerate or succumb to hyperbole to make our point. We have to make sure we keep it in perspective when we understand the limitations of the research. So here's how I normally phrase it. I normally say that educational research provides us with the most favorable course of action given the largest number of students but there's always exceptions to the rule. To me, the misfire is when you use your experience to counter the research. That level of arrogance for me is quite astonishing. The research gives us the general guideline, but since very little is ironclad, we have to make implementation choices. I think we are right to use our experience to determine the nuances of action, to determine those implementation choices. So the clinical research provides us the parameters. Our action research, if you will, allows us to develop the nuances of practice and understand why and how something works in our context. That kind of collective inquiry is most helpful. There is an odd tension between research and our experience. So for me, to mitigate that tension, I think we have to allow the clinical research to be our outline and let our experience and collective inquiry fill in the color. And as long as you don't color outside the lines, you, and more importantly, your students, should be just fine. Joining me today is none other than Jay McTie. Uh, You'd have to be living under a rock as an educator to not be familiar with Jay's work. Uh, Jay has co-authored 17 books, including the award-winning and best-selling Understanding by Design series, which he wrote with Grant Wiggins, of course, His books have been translated into 12 languages. He has also written 50 articles and book chapters and been published in many leading journals. He's conducted workshops in 47 states, seven Canadian provinces, and 35 countries on six continents. And it is an incredible career and and a career that just doesn't seem to be slowing down at all. So uh, Jay, really excited to have you here. Welcome to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. 
Thanks, Tom. Uh, good to be with you. Yeah, glad to have you here. One other thing I read, Jay, uh, in your biography, at the very end, you kind of snuck in this comment about uh, learning to surf. You said you were you set a goal to learn how to surf, and uh, three years later, you were able to accomplish that. So before we dig into uh, our, our topics today, tell us a little bit about what, why, why decide to surf, and, and what was that whole process like? Uh, well, thanks for letting me uh, kind of riff on this. Um, I was a college swimmer and loved the water and I loved the ocean. And when I would go to the ocean occasionally, especially if there were waves, I loved to first body surf and then I got into body boarding. Um, 15 years ago, my wife and I and another couple traveled to Costa Rica and we absolutely loved it. And we ended up buying a condo there together. So we're on a surfing beach in a beautiful part of Costa Rica on the Pacific coast. And I love the ocean and I love waves, but now the first time in my life, there's, I'll be in a place where I can actually learn to surf where there are consistently good waves. So I was 57 years old at the time and decided, hey, I, I love bodyboarding, and but I wanna try surfing. So I signed up for a lesson and there were three of us in a semi-private lesson. There was an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old and me. And, um, you know, they did the dry land stuff. Then we get out in the water and the little kids are, are popping up. Oh, yeah. you know, and I'm a strong swimmer, so I know how to catch the wave. I got that part. But as an older guy, just getting quickly from a prone position up to catch the wave. And you have to have your feet in the right position or you fall over or you fall right. forward. Right. That was eminently frustrating. <laughs> and, and after, you know, an hour and a half, I wanted to give up because the kids were getting it and I was looking like an idiot. Yeah. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute, you're in a learning profession and you're giving up after, you know, 90 minutes. Right. And, you know, many kids have this experience multiple times a day where they're trying to learn something. You're not getting it right away. They're frustrated. Maybe the teacher's not very supportive. And I said, well, shame on me, you know? <laughs> and so to make a long story short, I, I just committed myself to doing some exercises that would help also lower back because you have to arch your back and I was right. real sore um, and just worked at it. And um, I'm not, a, I'm not accomplished surfer, but I was able to get up and I have video proof of this. <laughs> There's so, video um, evidence. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say it, it, it to me is, is, is a reminder of the fact that, that learning something new is not easy. And as adults, I think we tend to gravitate toward our comfort zones and our areas of expertise. And I think as educators, it's, it's valuable for us to put ourselves into a learning position mm -hmm. periodically to, to develop greater empathy for the learner and also to apply what we know about learning, right. you know, intermittent right. practice and trying to understand the mechanics, not just go through the rote um, right. skill right. motions. Yeah. And, and, so that's and, my story. And, and, and all of the formative assessment that your, your teachers uh, were teaching, were, were utilizing during the uh, surfing lessons. Jay, I can't Absolutely. help, but, uh, I can't help, but just picture you, you, you say you're not accomplished, but I can't get the image of you sort of shredding inside a barrel of a 10 footer off the coast of Costa Rica. I'm just imagining you just shredding the waves down there. That's uh that's a great I have, story. I have that image also in my dreams. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're all fantastic when we're on the shore. Uh, listen, uh, we could obviously talk about a wide range of topics, and I'm going to use that as an excuse to invite you back on the podcast sometime down the road. Uh, but today I want to focus on uh, designing authentic performance tasks and projects uh, and, and, and focus in on 
just sort of how teachers can begin to either strengthen their approach uh, to authentic performance tasks and, and project-based learning, or maybe begin to explore that area, which uh, in, in some respects, COVID has forced us to rethink kind of the assessment paradigm at, at all angles. So, but let's begin with uh, maybe the two most important questions from your perspective, which is what are authentic performance tasks and projects and why are they now more important than ever? Uh, good questions. Let me start a, a little bit with a why. It's my contention that a modern education is preparing kids for a world that, as we know, is increasingly complex, interconnected, and, and in fact, unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And the, the COVID pandemic that's now gripping the world uh, was really on very few radars, people's radar, 13 months ago. Yeah. And yet it has completely redefined our lives and education and business and so forth. Um, and so my contention is the basic skill of the modern era in education is to prepare students to be able to transfer their learning, mm -hmm. be able to take what they learn, but, but be flexible enough to apply it to new and even unpredictable situations. Mm -hmm. That certainly foundational knowledge and basic skills remain you know, foundational, you can't do much without the basics. Right. But I like to propose that the basics should be considered the, the floor, not the ceiling of a modern education. Right. Accordingly, then, performance tasks and projects take on a, a more prominent role. If we want to prepare students to be able to transfer their learning, they need lots of practice in doing that. So for me, what is a performance task, but an opportunity for students to apply their learning, their the knowledge and skills, to a situation. And the authentic part of the, the, the phrase, authentic uh, performance task, is meant to suggest that as much as possible, we want to create realistic contexts for that application. Right. Moreover, I argue that our performance tasks should have some novelty to them, such that you can't just learn your way to a good performance. Right. You've got to be able to flexibly adapt and, and apply your learning to fit the nature of the context or the situation. Yeah. Uh, again, that's called transfer. Right. So uh, authentic performance tasks set up that opportunity. Now, what makes an authentic task? To me, the elements are pretty straightforward. There needs to be a clear goal or purpose in the task mm -hmm. for the student. So we're working on this task to help us make a decision, solve a problem, communicate something, persuade people through argumentation, design something to solve a problem, et cetera. So authentic purposes for application of learning. Secondly, um, there should typically be a target audience, maybe real, maybe simulated, but an audience gives direction to your efforts. Uh, thirdly, there are genuine real world constraints. Yeah. So you have to navigate this with a budget in mind, with a schedule in mind, uh, word count if you're a writer, right. for instance. Um, and finally, the students are actually producing something, a tangible product or a performance, which serves as evidence of their ability to apply their learning, evidence of their understanding, as well as even their basic skill applications. Right. right. Th those to me are the elements of yeah. authenticity yeah. in performance tasks and projects. It's, uh, it's, it's, um, you know, interesting. A couple things jumped out at me there. Uh, one was the <clears throat> your comment about adaptability. When Cassandra Nicole and I wrote about critical competencies for the 21st century, that was basically the driving premise of the book, which was 
you know, how do we make, we can't predict what the future is going to be like for students, but how do we make them highly adaptable? How do we make sure that they can transfer to multiple settings? And, 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 and at least that would be the goal uh, yeah. is, is, is that adaptability. And, the, and the, uh, the other piece about knowledge is one that I continue to see in the field is, is there seems to be this, I, I don't know if it's, a, it's inadvertent or intentional, but there seems to be this false dichotomy that's produced or talked about in terms of either, you know, deep learning or knowledge. It's almost like, you know, it's either knowledge or you do 21st century competencies and authentic tasks. And your point, I think, is just so, so excellent, which is you, you can't do anything without knowledge. You have to have the foundation, right? You, you know, the, the expression I often use is when you're thinking critically, <clears throat> you have to think critically about something. And that something yeah. is that foundational base. So that really stood out to me. Um, so those key characteristics you were talking about when designing performance tasks, how, how, do, how do teachers avoid uh, performance task light? Like what are, what are some of the signs where I think as a teacher, I've got some pretty good performance tasks, but, but really when you dig into the, in a little deeper, or, you know, go behind the surface of it, it's not really fulfilling the promise of what performance tasks. So what, what should teachers look for when they're sort of auditing their own performance tasks? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I actually have a set of what I call review criteria, okay. the qualities that should be evident in a performance task. So here they are. And this, okay. I think, gets at your question. Perfect. One, the task should be very explicitly aligned with some worthy goals. The goals may be related to disciplinary knowledge and skill. They may involve so-called 21st century skills that cut across disciplines, right. but you should be able to see a very overt connection. We're, we're engaging kids with this task to develop these particular outcomes and also to get evidence of them. Um, because you can have a cool task that's completely decoupled from standards or outcomes. Right. Um, so that's, that's a basic. Secondly, um, Grant Wiggins and I like to do an exercise around our work with understanding by design. And the question that we pose in the exercise is straightforward. The question is, what is understanding? Mm -hmm. and what do you look for as evidence of it? And, you know, I could go through the, the exercise in detail, but the yeah. essence of the answers are almost universal. People recognize that to see evidence of understanding, there needs to be some application, i.e. the student can use the knowledge appropriately, right. and there's explanation included. So it's not just an answer, it's not just a product. You have to show your reasoning, mm -hmm. support your argument, uh, justify your interpretation. Right. So in a nutshell, Tom, I like to say a good performance task should have some application to some novelty, there's some degree of transfer right. with explanation. Okay. Thirdly, they should be, it should be set in an authentic, realistic context as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And fourth, there should be agreed upon and public success criteria or rubrics associated with the task. And importantly, to get away from uh, performance tasks light, the, the criteria that are identified or embedded in a rubric need to go back directly to the goals or outcomes that are targeted. Because too often I see tasks where the kids produce a product and the criteria are what I would call surface feature qualities. You know, a, you know, your poster is attractive, colorful, right. you spelled your words right. right. Yeah, but it's a science poster. What about the science content? <laughs> yeah. Right? That's right. Yeah. So, and then finally, um, 
and you made reference to this in the question you sent me. Yeah. Um, when we look at the depth of knowledge scale in terms of degree of cognitive complexity, yeah. I recommend that any performance task should be minimally at level three of DOK okay. or four, which is where you get into more extended project-based learning. Right. And the only exception to that I would make would be for very young kids or kids in the first two months of a world language course right. where level two DOK tasks might be appropriate at the start, but you want to move to level three yeah. over the course of the year. Yeah. What, I want to talk a little bit about authenticity because, you know, as some teachers would say, and I know I've had this experience too in different settings where they say, look, Tom, you know, most of what occurs in school, you know, outside of what we've dealt with over the last 10 to 12 months, but most of the learning that happens in school is, is inside the school building. It's not possible for us to immerse students into different authentic environments. So how do you coach teachers on, you know, levels of authenticity? If you, if you can't immerse them in the environment, what, what are other ways in which teachers might be missing the idea of authenticity being very possible in their classrooms? Yeah, it's a great question. I actually define authenticity in school terms with, through two dimensions. Okay. The first one is the prominent one, which is we wanna give students opportunities to apply learning in ways that reflect or replicate how people outside of school use knowledge and skills. Right. So it doesn't mean we have to go to a, you know, an architectural firm to think like an architect to design a structure or a statistician to analyze data on exponential spread of, of a virus, right. um, et cetera. Uh, and so you don't have to leave the building to replicate what people do with learning. Right. So that's authentic in the quote, real world sense. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, some of the tasks, in fact, many performance tasks are what I would call simulated authenticity, right? Imagine you're a museum director setting up a museum display to teach an audience about X. Mm -hmm. Or imagine you're a book critic writing a book review to be posted online. Right. You're not really, but you're right. acting like that. Yeah. The second dimension, which is not often addressed as much, I don't think is, we also want to consider authenticity to the interests and experiences of students mm -hmm. because the two are not always conjoined. Right. You can have a real world task that the kids have no interest in or no experience with and so right. aren't engaged by. Right. So in the ideal world, which you can't always achieve, yeah. I think authenticity to real world application and being mindful of student interests and experiences as much as possible. Right. And so that allows them the, the opportunity to have a little bit of agency. Maybe that, you know, that's where a lot of the inquiry-based learning experiences come from, right? Where, where students are, are tapping into their curiosity for sure. Um, <clears throat> I want, I want to shift to, uh, go ahead. Just to jump on that. that, yeah, that yeah. One of the things that I've been working with, um, with great interest are something that I call task frames. Okay. Where the task frame gives a structure to the task, but the task frame is kind of like a Mad Libs. If you remember those Mad Libs yeah. books, yeah. right? So the teacher can fill in the content, the text, the problem, the essential question, the product, the audience, or where appropriate, you give kids some choice and voice in any of those elements. Right. Um, and that's proven to be really rich and, and flexible to bring mm -hmm. in voice and choice while still getting the learning as well as the evidence that you that you're targeting. Yeah, I, I think there's there's and, and given where we are with COVID right now and a lot of the uh, hybrid or virtual learning, we, we are almost being forced to turn 
some much, maybe most of the learning over to the students uh, in, in ways, again, depends on the circumstances you're in, but I'm definitely seeing uh, a willingness on some educators' parts to really sort of explore that idea of, of agency uh, for students who are, who are at home and, and ways that you can connect them to more authentic experiences for sure. I wanna shift to um, project-based learning now. Um, you have written that performance tasks and projects have many common features, uh, but the lines between them are blurry. Um, therefore, you don't believe it's necessary to view them as dichotomous as sort of either or choices. So if they're not dichotomous choices, if performance tasks and project-based you know, project-based learning experiences are not, are not dichotomous choices. What then is the relationship between the two? A great question. Uh, first of all, let's look at the commonalities. Both involve some performance by the student. Both should involve higher order thinking. It's not just rote learning that you're, that you're after. Right. Uh, and both involve producing a product or a performance. Mm -hmm. So that's what they share. However, they differ along a number of dimensions that, that I've written about in, in a, a new book. Yeah. Um, and so think of the dimensions as like a sound or a whiteboard, you know, where you can dial in yeah. more or less. So here we, we actually identified 12 dimensions, but let me highlight the key ones. Okay. Time frame. Typically performance tasks in my experience are shorter. I've seen good, rich DOK3 performance tasks that can be done in one or two class periods. Mm -hmm. But then you can have t tasks that might run three or four days or a week. To me, project-based learning in general tends to be longer term. Okay. My daughter, Maria, taught at High Tech High School in San Diego, mm -hmm. one of the preeminent PBL schools in the world. Yeah. And um, they did semester-long projects, real deep, mm -hmm. but they weren't studying seven periods a day. They were <laughs> going deep with one project. Right. So that's one continuum. Another one is the uh, whether the task is subject specific or multidisciplinary. Mm. Performance tasks can and often are subject specific. Uh, PBL projects tend to be almost always multidisciplinary mm. and typically incorporate very overtly the so-called 21st century skills, right. working with a team, um, creativity is involved and so forth. Um, a third variable is the degree to which the student is directing the task or the project. Mm. My experience is in general, particularly when teachers start, the performance tasks tend to be shorter, subject specific if they're secondary teachers, teach, you know, have the task related right. to what you teach, and tend to be more teacher directed. What the student has to do is laid out. Right. Project-based learning, to me, one of the inherent qualities is you want it to be more student directed. Mm -hmm. And so it's open-ended in that, in that sense. Uh, there, there are other variables like right. who's the audience? Right. Project-based learning typically has an authentic, a real audience. PB uh, projects might be a simulated. Imagine that you're presenting to uh, first graders. Um, there's some other dimensions, but sure. so I think of it along a continuum and the determination of what you're doing, you know, how much time, how much student control is all dependent on your goals and the context with which you, within which you work. Right. The longer term projects, as you know, can be rich, deep, authentic, and engaging for kids, but they come at an expense of content. Right. You just typically can't address as much content so that there's an ever-present tension between you know, content coverage, mm -hmm. uh, even in the, good, in the best sense, and yeah. 
the depth that a project could evolve. Yeah, there is that, um, you know, the connotation about uh, content and coverage, which I, you know, I would probably subscribe to most of the time. But at the same time, we can't be dismissive of responsibilities around making sure that we at least get to the breadth of most standards. So I do, I think that tension is always something that that teachers are wrestling with, which is the the, the tension between depth and breadth. And, exactly. and certainly we would want to favor depth over breadth, but at the same time, teachers are, you know, they're concerned that they're not. So that, that sort of struggle is, is how, how epic do these project-based experiences. I want to ask you the same question I asked you about performance tasks, because, yeah. you know, again, in my experience, I've come across, you know, hypothetically, the, the two teachers, one says, I do project-based learning, and the other says, I do project-based learning. And both on the surface look like, you know, the students are producing some sort of tangible evidence of that project. But one of them is not really the spirit of what project-based learning. So again, the question is, how do we avoid project-based learning light? How do we avoid just being superficial about it just to say that we're doing it? Yeah, well, um, I love to reference, um, it used to be the Buck Institute and now it's PBL Works. Right. They have what they call the gold standard mm -hmm. uh, for PBL. And they have a, a very you know, impressive list of, of qualities of good projects but they're not unlike the ones that, that we discussed a few minutes ago. Right. Higher order thinking should be involved, DOK three, and I would say four, four. for many projects. Yeah. Um, student directed, real audience, authentic product or performance produced. Um, uh, and I mean, those are the qualities that we look for. A PBL light, might involve the kids producing a product, spending an inordinate amount of time on the product creation, mm -hmm. you know, building the, uh, there's a joke in the US of the Colorado cake, okay. you know, because the shape of it is a sheet cake of the, of, or, you know, the, the popsicle pyramid, popsicle yeah. stick pyramid, um, where the cognitive demand is DOK1, Right. And quite frankly, the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Right. Kids spend a lot of time on creating something or they dress up in character and present a factual dump as a historical or literary character. Right. And the parents are in the back with a video camera. Everyone <laughs> looks happy. Right. Uh, but it's it's fluff. Yeah. So I, I, I like to use that little aphorism. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the juice worth the squeeze? I like that. Uh, yeah, I've often joked to people that, you know, there's it's one thing to do a deep learning experience. It's another thing to require every seventh grader by law to produce a diorama about Egypt. You know, those are the types of projects that that kids are doing. And again, is there some artistic expression in there? Maybe. But for the most part, it's it's not worth the time it takes away from from other learning opportunities. Can yeah. you walk us through um, can you walk us through backwards design? If I'm thinking of uh, obviously backwards design is 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 your your world. So if I'm thinking about a project, a project-based learning experience, just what's what's the process? How do I use backwards design to design my PBL experience for my students? Yeah, great question. Uh, I'm going to start with a disclaimer that uh, backward design is not original to Grant Wiggins or I. Yeah. You know, Ralph Tyler, 1949. No, wrote a book fair enough. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, yeah, we have championed it because it's a, it's a make sense and effective process for planning anything. Regarding PBL, I like to ask a, an essential question. If a project represents some answer, what questions is it answering? Right. And so to me, backward design always starts with goals or outcomes. You got to be clear about what you want to 
students to learn, to deepen their understanding, and to get evidence of their ability to apply. And I, I think sometimes teachers in their enthusiasm for PEL will jump on a quote, cool project, mm -hmm. and then try to retrofit it to standards or outcomes. Right. And I, I just don't think that's, that's the right move. Okay. Um, so start with clear uh, goals or outcomes. Um, secondly, I think teachers have to be clear about the variables that I described. How much student direction do you expect? And I would even say that should be targeting an outcome. If a school or a district says, we're committed to developing self-directed learners, and you see that in mission statements and in portraits of a graduate, sure. then I would expect that there's a fair amount of student direction built into the project. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, I think teachers also need to be very mindful of the capacity of their students as well as themselves to facilitate such a project. Mm -hmm. If kids have never done a long-term student-directed project and they're thrust in it, into it mm -hmm. in seventh grade or 10th grade, um, that to me is, is a flawed design because predictably they're going to struggle or, or be, be tired of the project before the due date mm -hmm. um, and so forth. So, so being mindful of the context is part of your design, design thinking. Yeah. And then finally, thinking about the evaluative criteria up front, you should be able to formulate your rubric or your set of rubrics mm -hmm. based on your goals. Don't wait till the project is done and then say, okay, let's right. think how we're going to evaluate what the kids have produced. Right. It's interesting. I've heard John Hattie mentioned several times about, you know, looking at project-based learning or inquiry-based learning and, and, and referencing the timing of it and, and how teachers need to be mindful of if you're going to have student-driven learning, make sure that they have a foundation of understanding of the topic at hand before you start asking them what they're curious about or what you want to dig into, because they may not know anything about what you're, you know, as you said, you're just throwing them into a project-based experience where they have only maybe superficial understanding of the topic and then asking them what do they want to think deeply about, that, that could certainly be challenging. So the timing of that uh, is really important. Let me throw in one more sure. element backward design, which gets at the instructional or preparatory phase. Yeah. And this to me works, whether you're talking about a short performance task in one subject or a multidisciplinary long-term project. Mm -hmm. Good teachers will use backward design to, to do task analysis, right? Okay. What knowledge, what skills, what conceptual understandings and what strategies are students going to need to be effective with this task or project? Right. Plan backward from that, pre-assess to find out where your kids are with respect to those needs, mm -hmm. and then teach to prepare them for the outcome that's expected. Yeah. I, I've seen too often teachers in the beginning stages, either they find a performance task or even a, a project online, they get excited by it, they want to do it, but they don't change their teaching and preparing the kids mm -hmm. for it. And then they're thrust into into the task. Yeah. That would be like a coach uh, marching through the playbook, play by play in practice, working on individual skill drills. And then the first time the kids see the, the, the game is when they're thrust onto the field or the court. Right, right. So backward design impacts not only how you plan the project, but how you prepare the students and your yeah. teaching in that.
Uh, you, you mentioned pre-assessment, and I hadn't planned on asking you about this, but since you, you brought it up, just very quickly, what are some important things about pre-assessment that teachers need to keep in mind? Because again, like most things, you know, we can say we're doing them, but we may not be effectively using pre-assessment in a way. And I think, I, was it you and Tom that wrote an article, Tom Gusky wrote an article about that uh, yeah. a few years ago. Just what are some of the key key points around performance assessment that teachers should keep, or uh, uh, pre-assessment that, that teachers should keep in mind? Well, to, to me, it's based on a fundamental understanding of learning, yeah. right? The most, the most significant factor in new learning is prior knowledge. Yeah. New knowledge is built on prior knowledge. And so before teaching something new, it, it, I would argue it's, it's almost imperative to find out what the learner knows or thinks they know about the topic or the skill being introduced. Uh, and the only way to find that out is to do some kind of pre-assessment to see where the students are. Having that as a base of information then enables the teacher to say or to, to, to recognize, hey, the kids knew more than I imagined they, they do, so I can start a little farther along. Right. Or what often happens is you realize that kids have a fundamental misconception or they have lacking skills you assume they had been taught before right. and you got to drop back just to pretend that that doesn't exist is is non-functional teaching right so to me it's critical and with performance tasks or projects in mind you've got to find out where they are relative to the skills needed so that you can most effectively and appropriately build the skill set in advance of the task or project yeah so would it be fair to uh, assert that your position on pre-assessment would be the pre-assessment is much more, has much more utility when you're assessing for readiness and points of entry versus the other model, which is here's an advanced version of the assessment I'm going to give you in three weeks. You know how people might sort of use the advanced version of the summative assessment they might have in an, at an end of a unit, uh, which you can pretty much predict how students are going to do. Would, would, would you focus more on readiness and, and sort of instructional utility as opposed to that advanced version? Would that be a fair? Uh, I, think, I, think, I think both are valuable. Okay. I, I'm an advocate for letting kids know a culminating performance task yeah. right in the beginning also in the same way that the coach mm -hmm. shows film uh, game film and the the theater director shows a video of the play they're going to produce right before they practice right yeah. having said that um i think there are times when giving kids kind of a pre-assessed non-evaluated opportunity to try a task early on right. has virtue and there are other times where i don't think it, it's the best use of time right yeah so, so but I, guess, I think yeah. i think of them not as either or i think they're part of a constellation sure. of important ways of finding out where kids are and in the second case giving them an advanced organizer of what they need to work on um, okay so now, uh, I want to focus a little bit on formative assessment, because one of the things that I run into, and, and, and maybe you have as well, is uh, they're, they're for some, and I think some of this has to do with degrees of experience that teachers have, which is when they, when they're, they can sort of envision what formative assessment looks like in what they might think to be a traditionally structured classroom. But I have often run into teachers who who start, start to sort of slide away from the notion of formative assessment when they're engaged in project-based learning. They don't see how formative assessment fits with PBL. So walk us through a little bit of your, I don't know if you've experienced that before, and if you have, 
how do you coach teachers through this idea that formative assessment is still relevant in a, in a PBL experience? Yeah, uh, uh, with your indulgence, I'm going to expand it to performance tasks and Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so the first point is one that I mentioned already, which is I think one of the best ways of preparing kids for performance tasks or projects is to do the task or project analysis, find out what knowledge, skills, and strategies are needed, and then teach those and give kids practice in them along the way. That's the instructional phase. And so it's an instructional phase. We should use formative assessment when we're teaching anything new um, to check and see if they're getting the skills if they're developing the conceptual understandings, if they know the stuff they need to know. Right. But, but here's, here's something, Tom, that, that I think sometimes is lacking, particularly with beginners. The, the presumption is if I teach the kids all the components that they're going to need for the task or the project, therefore, I've done my job. Now it's up to them. But again, my coaching analogy uh, suggested a moment ago kicks in. How do coaches prepare players for the game, which is authentic performance, or how do theater directors? They not only work on the skills and practice the scenes in isolation, they build, build up the building blocks. Mm -hmm. They have a scrimmage and they have a dress rehearsal. Yeah. I think that's really a key formative preparation for the actual game. And a lot of teachers, I think, miss that. Yeah. So, so with respect to performance tasks, a scrimmage would be something like a mini task that has the elements of the task, but it's a little less complex, but it's used as a formative assessment. Yeah. Um, it could be a group task where you work with partner and you give each other feedback and the teacher gives you feedback, or it could be a group, the whole class does the task together with the teacher as a guide. Mm -hmm. So you're giving kids for preparation and feedback before they hit the game. Same thing with dress rehearsal and theater. Now for projects, I think there are one more element because the projects are typically more student direction directed, typically longer term, then I think formative assessment is not just about the skills needed for the project, but also things like project management, staying on time, everybody doing their part, finding the resources you need if you have to do that as part of the task. So. I recommend that in projects, teachers have regular check-ins. You know, even think about the university professor that has office hours. We're gonna right. book where I'm gonna meet with the team or meet with the individual to check where they're going. Because mm -hmm. a lot of kids fall down in projects, not only or necessarily because of lack of content knowledge or skill, but they just don't have practice in managing their time. Mm -hmm. So that, that can be a formative check-in and, and sure. should be in my group. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a lot of times what I've found is that the teachers who struggle with the concept of formative assessment in a project are the ones who who look at formative assessment more as an event and thinking like, what will I have them complete or what will I have them them fill in as opposed to seeing formative assessment as a verb, which is, you know, the constant sort of interaction that you're not going to tabulate, quantify, you're not going to put that anywhere other than it's a constant interaction. It's, you know, I often say to people, the coaching analogy, I think is a really good one because it has so many uh, layers of applicability. First, coaches are, are never not assessing their athletes. Every move they make is, is being assessed. And, and if you go to any practice, and as someone who's coached football and basketball and a number of different other sports, 
you go to any practice and you're going to see the exact same practice formula. And that is the practice is going to begin with individual skill development. You're going to start to put different groupings together. You know, you put your running backs and your linemen together to work on your running game while the receivers and the quarterbacks are working on the passing game. And it all ends in a kind of team period where you're replicating or emulating. You talk about authenticity, right? Emulating the practice, the, the, the game experience. And so exactly. that whole coaching model is, I think, one that really serves well in terms of that scaffolding, the way that we layer uh, all of that practice. So I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, the other question I have for you that... Um, maybe a little bit of a tangent. I know you've written recently about, you know, leading sort of this kind of modern learning environment. So can we just talk a little bit about principals and assistant principals who, you know, are a little bit, you know, they don't have a depth of understanding about performance tasks or, or project-based learning, but, but they understand, the one thing they do understand is that their school or district staff, their, their school district should be going in this direction. So what advice do you have for principals and assistant principals or district leaders about trying to engineer uh, this, I guess, this collective urgency around moving toward, without panicking people, but how do we create an urgency around these more authentic learning experiences? Yeah, it's a great question. I have two parts to my answer. Okay. Second is a cautionary note. So the first part of the answer is, it it really is a backward design question in my view. Backward design starts with what are your goals? And I think a district or school leadership team, and that includes teacher leaders as well as administrators, need to be clear about the the long-term goals and their mission, if you will. Mm -hmm. And if you can identify your mission as not just marching through lots of content to prepare kids for one once a year standardized test, but if you think about preparing them for a modern world which gets at your adaptability skills, higher order thinking and transfer goals. I think there needs to be a collective agreement among the leaders that this is a priority right now. This is what we're gonna go for and communicate that clearly. If you don't do that, you know, you're essentially recommending a methodology, project-based learning mm-hmm. without a purpose. Right. So right. start with goal, that's stage one. Mm-hmm. Stage two of backward design is think about assessment evidence. I actually encourage school and district leaders, including teacher leaders, to to be very overt about saying, what would we see in two or three years if this greater emphasis that we've identified in our goals is happening? What would we see in classrooms? What would kids be doing? What would teachers be doing? What would parents see? And and really think that through Mm -hmm. before going to stage three, which is the action plan of how we're gonna get there. Mm -hmm. That's where professional development, support, maybe changing structure, so there are times for interdisciplinary teams to meet, to plan interdisciplinary projects and to meet to score student work. Those, those that's stage three, that's action. Mm-hmm. But you have to be clear about your goals. Think about the evidence before you start jumping into an action plan. Right. Now, here's the cautionary note. Um, watching my daughter's school, High Tech High, for many years, watching people literally from all over the world go to that school and just be awed by the authenticity, the quality of student work, the engagement by kids who are of very diverse ability and interest range. It's not just the school for gifted kids. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they wanna emulate that back in their school. But too often what I've seen is the administrators don't wanna give up on covering all the standards, right. don't wanna get rid of textbooks, don't wanna change the schedule, and by God, don't let the test scores drop. Right. 
but we want you to do authentic long-term projects. Without, without clarity about the priorities, I, I actually discourage leaders from doing that. You're just gonna guilt trip teachers yeah. and it's not gonna work. Yeah. You're gonna be frustrated if the scores drop because teachers didn't get to chapters eight and nine, which is on the test. So my recommendation then is if you wanna to move toward more authentic and deeper learning, which I define as learning that prepares transfer. Okay. I don't define deeper learning as doing PBL. That's right. a means to an end. Right. That starts, think big, but start small. Start within subjects, start with shorter performance tasks, build up the, everyone's capacity to do this. And then over time, you could, might start looking at some longer term multidisciplinary projects. Right. But right. unless you're willing to change the structure and say to teachers, your job is not to cover all the standards, you're just gonna set up tension in the system. Right. Right. So much of it is about uh, sponsorship, right? It's it's giving attention as a superintendent or as a principal to say, this is what we're willing to let go of. And this is what exactly. we're willing. And, and I'll run interference when initially people are, you know, whether it's parents, the community, you know, pushing back on this kind of shift, you know, that's part, I think one of the things I learned about the, the role of school-based or even district-based leadership, uh, you know, and having been in both positions is that sometimes your job is to run interference mm -hmm. to kind of protect the learning environment for sure. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and not just jumping in in isolation. I think your point is so well taken, which is so, so many want to rush to being able to declare that we do PBL. And that really isn't the end goal. That's that's the means to an end, right? The transferability that you you you've spoken about, and um, and that deeper that definition of deeper learning. Now, when it's time for summative assessment, using the evidence to make a determination, um, you also wrote that for evaluation of student performances. Uh, so, quote for evaluation of student performances and products where reliable scoring is important, well-developed analytic rubrics are needed. So, I'm curious as to why you, your preference for analytic rubrics over say uh, holistic rubrics or just a list of criterion? Yeah, well, it's based on a fundamental premise that I hold, which is the primary purpose of assessment is to improve, support and improve learning. Yeah. And so with that as a base, then one of the questions is how do you improve learning? Well, we know that you need specific feedback to improve learning and a, a letter grade or a rubric score on a holistic rubric is mm -hmm. not feedback. Okay. That's an evaluative symbol of some performance level. Yeah. Telling a kid you got B uh, plus or a three out of four is not feedback. That's not gonna help you improve. Right. Feedback is specific, uh, targeted, understandable yeah. to the learner. And so an analytic rubric, which breaks down complex performances into traits, gives that more precise feedback. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, my argument is especially that along the way, kids and teachers should be using analytic rubrics for the reason I just mentioned. Yeah. I have no inherent objection to, at the end of everything, having a holistic version of that, um, as long as the key traits are, are nonetheless embedded in the holistic version. Yeah. Because if you think of it, a, a summative evaluation is often holistic, at least in the way we treat it today. It, you know, mm -hmm. it ends up as a letter grade or as a, as a number that's mm -hmm. translated to some symbol on a report card. Yeah. So I get that there's a place for holistic scoring, yeah. but my argument is 
we should be starting off with analytic rubrics, using them all the way through. Yep. And then if you want to collapse them holistically, you can. Mm-hmm. But, but holistic rubrics are not, um, don't be a feedback. Now, interesting, a, yep. a criterion list, a list of criterion are in fact analytic because you have five or six traits or you know criteria that you're judging. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that's my argument. Here's a here's a little uh, sidebar note. Um, for any any listeners and viewers who have had a baby recently or a grandbaby, should understand that in the delivery room, the nurses, uh, the the physicians and attendant nurses use something called the APGAR scale, and the APGAR scale is a five trait analytic rubric mm. to do an immediate assessment of the health of the newborn. And so I like to say to people, well, why do you think they use an analytic scale versus a holistic scale, right? A holistic scale would be, how's the kid look? Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> That's imprecise. Each of the five traits on the APGAR scale are tied to very important health indicators. Right. And if any one of them is off or low, it, you, you attend to it. Right. So right. I like to say analytic rubrics are not only new, it's the first thing kids see right out of the chute. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, and, and I, you know, listeners, you'll recall, we've had a couple of, I've had a couple of segments in past episodes on rubrics. And I think to, to echo, uh, you know, your position, the idea that the analytic rubric really is that foundational piece, right? Once you have the analytic rubric, creating the holistic rubric for reliable scoring or creating your single point rubric, that tool can be a spinoff of that foundation, but that analytic rubric really does provide the detail and, and nothing wrong with co-constructing that with students and helping them right from the get-go, understanding what quality looks like and the gradations of quality that run along those levels. So uh, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's the most effective teaching tool of all, all the formats of rubrics that we, we definitely utilize. Now, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. One of the things that, that Grant and I discussed and have written about, however, does come back to the analytic holistic uh, kind of question. And, mm-hmm. and this is something that, uh, that I love to point out to people that one of the potential um, weaknesses of an analytic rubric is you can analyze the component parts, but miss the overall effect. Right. And so Grant and I have written about what we call impact criteria. Mm-hmm. And, and so here's an example. Let's say it's an argumentation essay or a, or a TED talk where you're trying to persuade an audience. Yeah. You could identify and do well on all the component parts or, or if it's a persuasive essay, but it, it doesn't persuade. Mm-hmm. You know, you've gotten an argument, you've made your case, you've used evidence, but it's dull as dishwater. <laughs> you <Right. know? laughs> and so, so we like to remind people that the more authentic the task or the project, the more you want to be explicit about impact criteria. Right. Did right. your story entertain the reader? Did your argument persuade? Did your design hold the weight it was meant to support? Right. Um, don't lose sight of that because you can have all the pieces but miss the whole. Yeah. I, I'll sometimes say to people, look, you can have all the ingredients, but you have to make the meal. It's not about just having the ingredients, but you've got to put it all together and it has to actually accomplish what it is that you were set out to do, which was make the meal, right? So if the persuade, if the goal of persuasion is to persuade, that is the ultimate, the ultimate goal. Um, By the way, you may have heard this uh, cooking quip, but I've always liked it. That formative assessment is when the the chef is tasting the meal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah. summative is when the diners evaluate. When the, the, when the diners have it, for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, what do you say to those who might say to you, look, Jay, authentic performance tasks and project-based experiences are great for most students, but there's no way my students who are receiving special services or my English language learners, how am I supposed to, they're not, they're, it's not possible for them to do project-based learning. How do you respond to that assertion? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a great practical question. Let, let me start with the ELL first. Okay. Um, if you're clear about the learning goals, then the assessment question to me becomes how will students or might students show evidence of this learning? Mm -hmm. So for a student who, who has limited um, English or in some cases French capacity, yeah. um, we would, would say, well, what is the goal? If the goal is to demonstrate an understanding of a scientific concept, might they show that visually or in their target language? Yeah. Um, and the answer is yes, I think so. We can give kids various ways of showing what they understand or their skill um, in ways that work best for them. Right. Now, clearly, if the goal is in written or spoken English, then we have to assess them on that capacity right. and be honest about where they fall on a proficiency continuum. Right. But, um, but I think we should give kids opportunities to show what they've learned in different ways. Like Grant Wiggins like to say, we can have standards without standardization. Right. With respect to uh, students in special education, I have a couple of comments on that. First of all, it depends on the nature of the special need. And, and those vary so widely, it's, it's hard for me to give a general right. recommendation. Um, in some cases, it's just a matter of making an appropriate accommodation. Larger type, read the task to the student, um, et cetera. Um, but even for students that are in, you know, the kind of the deeper categories of, of special needs, arguably they are working off an individualized education plan, an IEP, Right. And our assessment should be targeted to that and those goals rather than necessarily the general, you know, academic goals. Mm -hmm. And so we can often have authentic assessments tied to their goals. Right. One of which I have observed over the years is self-sufficiency mm -hmm. and agency, mm -hmm. helping kids become more able to get the help they need, to request the help they need, and to become increasingly self-sufficient rather than having to be you know, waiting for someone to help them along. So that to me, for some kids is maybe one of the most important goals. And there are many authentic ways in which we can give them opportunities to demonstrate increasing self-sufficiency yeah. or yeah. self-advocacy. Yeah, I, I, I love your response because where I was going with this question was, you know, so often we we speak about students receiving special services or English language learners as monoliths. And we really do need to consider the nature of, of their IEP or the nature of the standards when you talk about language and, and being a little bit more specific in our response as opposed to saying my, my ELs can't do that is just kind of an absurd assertion. Uh, let's finish up here with uh, where teachers should begin. So let's imagine that you have a teacher who has little to no experience with performance tasks or, or project-based learning experiences. Um, what what do you what advice do you have for teachers who might have the will, but not the skill to to execute uh, either a performance task or a or a project based learning experience? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So there are four or five things that I, I recommend. The first is um, start small. Pick a performance test within the subject you're teaching around the topic you know well. If it's a project, keep it small and constrained initially. Uh, secondly, work smarter. Um, don't try to reinvent these things on your own unless you have a brilliant idea that you're just excited <laughs> about. Right. Go to the scale, Stanford scale um, bank of performance tasks mm -hmm. or go to PBO Works or Expeditionary Learning where there are many well-developed projects that you can find. And if you want to customize, customize from a one that's already well-structured. Yeah. Thirdly, if at all possible, work with a colleague or a team. Collaboration really helps both the design and, and helping kind of manage the flow of the, the task or the project. Mm -hmm. A fourth, uh, you know, obviously consider evaluative criteria early on. And here, here is a, here's an interesting quick check to see if your performance test or project is in fact well aligned to your targeted goals. Show the project or the task to another teacher or a team and ask them to tell you only by looking at the task or the project what they think your goals are. Mm -hmm. That's a really quick formative feedback for you. For you. And yeah. finally, when you're first starting out, I really advise teachers, keep it low stakes for students and for yourself. Because invariably, first time out, there'll be rough spots. Right. And, and, and just don't make it too high stakes, especially for kids. Treat it more as an action research project and go in with an inquiry mind. I want to see how this works. I want to see how engaged the kids are. I want to see what they do well. I want to look for things that, that I thought they could do and they didn't. Um, I want to see how, how the time is managed. Mm -hmm. So keep, a, keep it as an action research project. And I like to use Edward de Bono's uh, old PMI kind of analysis frame. P. What are the pluses in how it worked, what kids got from it, their engagement, the evidence of quality? Minus, what were some of the weak points, either in management, time use, or student performance? And I, what was interesting? What didn't I expect? Right. Or what was surprising to me or surprising to kids? That's a really interesting analysis frame. And if you do yeah. it with a colleague or a team, it's fun to put your head together and learn from it. So those, those are my tips. Yeah, talk about, uh, you know, again, we live, we work in a learning profession and uh, being open to learn ourselves and not putting so much pressure on yourself to get it perfect the first time. And, and we know why teachers do it. Teachers, they want to do right by students. They want to make sure the experience is as rich as possible. But sometimes that can stop you from your own growth and ultimately getting to a place where we we create a kind of deep, really authentic learning experience for students. Jay, I feel like we've just we've just scratched the surface on this. So obviously, uh, there'll be opportunities, uh, hopefully down the road, to have you back and continue to dig deeper in 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 this or other topics. But we're going to finish uh, with a segment I call uh, three questions. Uh, some lighthearted questions. I've actually got two bonus questions for you. So this is going to be five, but I'm going to go three lighthearted questions. So listeners can get to know, we got to know uh, you a little bit uh, with the surfing story, but uh, a few other questions that'll help listeners get to know you uh, a little bit. And then we'll finish up with a question about success and, and happiness. But here's the first question, Jay, uh, on, on a more lighthearted note. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this before we, we came on air. Um, are you a morning person or evenings? What's, what's your preference? Uh, mornings or uh, evenings? 
I'm an evening person. Ah, okay, night owl. So how 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 deep into the evening do you go? <laughs> um, a little late, less as I've gotten older. But uh, you know, my wife and I, who also is an eating person, will often be working at midnight. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm. I'm if, we're into, if we're into something, you know, yeah. that we want to pursue, yeah. but um, then you know, since I'm not traveling uh, this year, yeah, I can sleep in if I if I uh, choose to. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. By midnight, I'm probably two hours into my sleep. <laughs> But but waking up early. Um, okay, second question. If you could listen to only one artist for the rest of your life, one musical act, one mu musical artist for the rest of your life, who would it be and why? Well, if, if you asked a single song, I would probably pick Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Mm. It's just soulful. Okay. And I could hear it again and again. Uh, in terms of a group... I mean, probably the Beatles, just for the variety. For the variety, yeah. That's, yeah. You can't go wrong with the Beatles library, that's yeah, for that's sure. A, that's, a safe, that's a safe bet. That's <laughs> a safe bet for sure. Okay, uh, third one. You you uh, have presented in 35 countries, and I know that when I travel overseas, I'm often surprised when I, when I arrive in countries compared to what I thought it was going to be like or compared to what I had heard. So I want to ask you, uh, of the 35 countries you've presented in, and maybe you've you've probably been to more than 35 countries um, just for vacation, et cetera, which country surprised you the most in a positive way uh, and why? Why were you surprised? Like, what was it about that that surprised you when you arrived in that country based on what you had thought you were going to experience? I'll give you maybe a, a, a surprising answer. Um, it was in the U.S. It was in Barrow, Alaska, Oh. which is part of North Slope Borough School District okay. that, that serves primarily Inupiat natives. And the district is the size of the state of Minnesota, but I think they have about 2,200 kids in Barrow and five little remote villages, wow. only accessible by plane for much of the year. Mm -hmm. But what, what surprised me um, or, or deepened my appreciation was the Inupiat values and traditions. And I have seen this in other places, such as in the Maori in Australia and Aboriginal people, or, or Maori in New Zealand and Aboriginal and, and other quote native peoples. But it was my own country, but just a remarkably sane and human set of values and traditions that mm -hmm. I think we've lost in sort of the modern right. um, you know, parts of North America. Yeah. Well, that, that that does surprise me that you you had that, but pleasantly, I, I you yeah. know, in you in in what is your own country? I, I spent you know five summers doing intense curriculum project in this district, so yeah. I really got a chance to immerse myself and, right. and get a just a feel for the culture, the traditions, and the values yeah. that were just our world would be a better place if everyone embraced right. uh, such, such right. beliefs. That's that's really interesting. Okay, I've got two uh, bonus questions for you. Uh, the first one is uh, in in May of 2015. Of course, uh, education lost an icon, and you lost a dear friend, uh, Grant Wiggins. So, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, to tell us your you know the the funniest sort of. The, the, your best slash funniest Grant Wiggins story, uh, the things, things that might, you know, the, the, the everyday educator might not know uh, a side of Grant. Uh, okay, so here, here's, here's, here's one. Um, I met somewhere along the line, while Grant was still living, in fact, 
a couple of teachers that taught with him, or I'm sorry, who went to school with him as a student. He was in both independent boarding schools and international schools because his father was a diplomat. It wasn't, I think it was just one person. Anyway, the, this, the person said, oh yeah, we used to call Grant the captain. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, that's not surprising because of his, his intellect and his leadership. And he said, no, 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 because he ate Captain Crunch cereal every morning. <laughs> that's amazing. I used, to, I used to chide him with this. Okay, Captain, uh, <laughs> here us ahead, sir. Yeah, you have these visions of, of where the, the nickname Captain comes yeah, right. from, and yeah. it really doesn't come. I have this come. image of the little cartoon pirate. Uh, right, that's, cart- <laughs> that's right. That's a good one. Uh, okay, last last bonus question, just because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's relevant. Um, and um, Super Bowl pick? By the time this episode airs, Jay, the Super Bowl will be over. So um, you're going to be on the hook for your Super Bowl prediction. I really like Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, Mahomes for Kansas City. So I'll go with I'll go with them. I, I don't have a dog in the fight, but no. I, I think he's. I love watching him. Both his his amazing athleticism, but he also just seems to be a good person and a good team leader. Yeah. And I I don't have anything. I'm not one of these Brady haters, but I just like Mahomes. So I'm going to yeah. lean. Kansas City. Yeah, I'm 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 with you on that. I have had Patrick Mahomes on my fantasy football team for the last uh-huh. three years, so I have I have learned to cheer for the Chiefs simply because it would help. <laughs> so we're all selfish. Yeah, yeah. It would help me in my fantasy football, uh, you know, league. So definitely, uh-huh. uh, I can't say that I'm the biggest Tom Brady fan. I definitely respect uh, his accomplishments, but um, you know, I've 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 been a, a Miami Dolphins fan as well. I, I cheer for the Seahawks, but. Also, as a huge Dan Marino fan, so I became when I was younger and became a Dolphins fan. So cheering for the Patriots was always a difficult thing to do. So, and they just kept winning and winning and winning, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. All right, uh, Jay, I'm going to end with one final question to you, and it's a question I've asked everyone that's been uh, been on the podcast, and and that is simply the question about success and happiness. It's a theme I'm trying to run through the podcast a little bit, getting everyone's perspectives on it. So the the question is pretty simple. And the question is, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? Yeah, well, when I think of success, I think of it as succeeding at something. And therefore, to me, success has something to do with accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And I would say there are maybe two ways of judging that. There's sort of the external validation that comes from success. I mean, without sounding boasting, you know, understanding by design is an award-winning best-selling book. So that's external validation for something that Grant Wiggins and I accomplished. Right. Um, but the other part of it that maybe is more, more meaningful and, and in, intrinsic is, is success according to your own kind of gauge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'll give you a, maybe a, a, a fairly simple example. I mentioned I was a college swimmer and I, I uh, was not a great swimmer. My, I, my uh, teammate was a all conference record holder and the best I could ever do in a race would be behind him second. But I would gauge my successes by improvements in my times. Mm-hmm. So it was a self uh, referenced ver- version of success. Mm-hmm. So that's a long way of saying, I think success is gauged by accomplishments, but accomplishments can be externally validated, but also internal that you have grown, you've improved, um, irrespective of, of how you r- relate to the rest of the world. Right. So that's, that's 
how I think about that word. Yeah, the way we, uh, and and that that seems to have been a common theme amongst many, which is that there is that internal defining of what success means to you. And once you once you decide what that is, we all have the opportunity and and are blessed with the, the opportunity to to say this is what success means to me. And and when we reach that accomplishment, regardless of that external validation, we can feel that we have accomplished uh, success in our lives. Jay, I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Listeners, uh, of course, I would encourage you to follow Jay on Twitter. Uh, many of you probably already are, but uh, it's at Jay McTie, all lowercase, uh, is the Twitter handle. Also, uh, jmctie.com is the home of McTie and Associates Consulting, where, of course, you can find resources, uh, information about upcoming events, um, information about Jay's team of associates there, as well as information about how to book Jay and the team for workshops uh, and trainings. Uh, so lots of great information on that website. Jay, uh, thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Tom. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address a question that comes up every so often when discussing the assessment in the context of 21st century learning, and that is the assessment of creativity. As And, and you'll re recall that with uh, both Katie White and Katie Martin, we did talk about this a few months ago in those interviews a little bit, but I want to bring uh, some added thinking to that conversation. As schools and districts and even states and provinces and other jurisdictions have shifted to prioritizing critical 21st century competencies, one of the most common questions that arises is, how do I assess creativity and innovation? So I want to start with a story. And I want to go back to uh, kind of the similar era. You'll remember that story from October about my attending a regional meeting and the experience I had with the retired superintendent. I want to go back to that era, 2009, 2010. So again, I'm working at the district level and our Ministry of Education had just rolled out that four R's and seven C's document I talked about. And that was all about 21st century learning. Now, during that same period of time, we had a district meeting that was, you know, all about what was on the horizon. So we had teachers and principals and district staff. Um, it was kind of a representative group from, from around our district to come and just talk about what the ministry was uh, proposing. So after the meeting, uh, I'm walking out with one of the teachers I had previously worked with at uh, one of our local high schools, and she was genuinely excited about what was on the horizon. But uh, she said two things in our conversation that in that moment that kind of caught my attention. First, she said, um, you know, Tom, I'm really excited, but uh, the only thing I'm struggling with right now is the idea of teaching and assessing creativity. How do I do that? I'm not an art teacher. That was the first comment. And then moments later, she kind of added, and how exactly do you teach, let alone assess creativity? Who am I to judge a student's creativity? So I didn't really have an answer for her in that conversation. We were just kind of going back and forth, but it did get me thinking. And so I walked back to my office and reflected on her questions. The meeting I had just attended, of course, was in a building right behind our district office. So it was a very quick walk, and I went back to reflect on the meeting, uh, but specifically uh, her questions. And I thought she made some good points, um, you know, through that conversation. And I asked myself a reflective question, which was this, okay, so how do we assess creativity without stifling creativity? And I went home that night, and, uh, and the meeting was still in my head. Right? I was still thinking about it, and specifically the questions. But the context and the conversation we had in the entire meeting was just, I was mulling it over in my mind. So I wake up the next day, I go into work, 
And I had what I thought were my initial answers to the question in that moment. And the first that I sort of came to conclusion was that we have to expand what we mean by creativity. So we know that Howard Gardner describes creative thinking as thinking beyond conventional wisdom or habitual practice. So it's still about thinking. So if we expand our definition of what we mean by creativity, not just the narrow definition of you know, art or aesthetically pleasing, uh, we, we, we define it as uh, beyond conventional wisdom or thinking beyond habitual practice, we've got an expansive definition of what we mean. Second, in order to teach and assess creativity without stifling creativity, we need to focus on thinking with creative intent, right? So again, not to focus on whether something is aesthetically pleasing, but to focus on the intent behind what was produced. And by doing that, I think you accomplish a couple of things. One is that criteria becomes transferable. So thinking happens in all classrooms, in all subject areas. So thinking beyond conventional wisdom or beyond habitual practice is creative thinking. So two, by doing so, by focusing on those who think with creative intent, we avoid judging whether something, the outcome, is creative because that concern is real. It, it, it is a real concern because if we're running around sort of saying that's creative, that's not creative, this is creative, then we do run the risk of stifling the students, you know, willingness to take risks and put themselves out there. Now, we have to assess if we're going to claim the development of creative, creative thinkers. Now, I'll say that till I'm blue in the face. You cannot develop anything without assessing it. Now, you don't have to test it in the traditional sense, but it has to be assessed. So that was my answer. We teach and assess students in their abilities to think with creative intent. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, in Growing Tomorrow's Citizens in Today's Classrooms, uh, Cassandra, Nicole, and I outline a process for thinking with creative intent, which can be used to develop criteria. Right, So I'm going to list these in order and include what we see as the ultimate criteria for each. Right, If we were building a rubric, this is what we would say would be the sort of ultimate outcome. So the five steps for thinking with creative intent are the preparation, the incubation, the illumination. It's also the verification. And then of course the implementation. Okay. So let's begin with the preparation. This is where a student prepares by identifying an area of curiosity for further investigation. So what would we see a student doing? Well, you'd see a student self-selecting an area of curiosity for deeper investigation. They would clearly be able to articulate the question and the task at hand they would be able to provide you with some at least early indications of the direction they were going for that investigation and be able to highlight related areas of study and possibly some of the interconnectedness of the concepts, right? That's what you would notice. So then we move into the incubation stage. And incubation is really about synthesizing and imagining and constructing possibilities. Like another way of putting that would be let the idea kind of marinate, if you will. Okay, so what would you see a student doing? Well, you'd see students gathering and organizing information. You'd see them gathering and organizing ideas or artifacts and generating a, an array of ideas from a variety of areas. Uh, they would have some evidence of maybe even some draft linkages between the diverse ideas and the topic. They would, they'd see some of those connections. They maybe even offer some early insights as to ideas, and, and those sort of connections are moved around during what we might call the play stage, where they're just playing around with the possibilities and beginning to provide some, you know, multiple solutions or directions that they might want to go. So then we have the third phase, which is the illumination phase. And this is where students or all of us have the epiphany, right? This is where you get your insight or the epiphany. So what will we see? Well, with students, 
we would see students developing an innovative or kind of they get this rare epiphany, reaching unique insight, right? They, they gain some insight. They demonstrate an openness to new insights because, of course, thinking is never final. They would, you'd see them remaining passionate about moving to the implementation stage, and you'd probably see some excitement about the, the possibilities that their solutions hold, okay? So phase four is the verification phase. Now, verification involves seeking feedback and validation during the formative phase, whether or not the potential solution or the solutions are actually worth pursuing, right? So you're testing it out. A lot of times you're self-assessing, making personal decisions regarding concluding steps. Okay, so what would you notice students doing? Well, you'd see students actively soliciting feedback from peers, from teachers, from experts in the field, and, and other individuals outside the classroom, right? They would purposefully be seeking alternative perspectives to discern the viability of, of what they've decided to do, what their project is. Uh, they would probably continue to gather feedback as things change, as changes are made, right? And they probably would engage in multiple revisions until they were actually happy and proud of the outcome. So you'd see that kind of activity. And then the fifth phase is the implementation phase where you know the idea moves from concept to reality. So this is where you'd see students uh, submitting the, the project with their initial concept. So they would finally be, okay, we're ready to move forward. Um, and, and now we've got this project, we're ready to move to reality, uh, the solution to reality, whatever the case might be, right? So the key here is going from concept to reality. Um, and maybe they've even identified possible next steps for improvement or even additional contributions that, that may need to be made as well. Uh, so, you know, this is where, uh, you know, imagination and, and creativity and innovation all kind of come together, right? James Belanca writes that innovation and creativity are inextricably linked. It has been said that innovation, he, he, he says, is imagination realized and that only when creative thought is put into action does innovation occur. Now, you'll notice as I went through all of that criteria that none of it references any subject or topic, never mind a task. So we, we would have task-neutral criteria. Right? And that's transferable. And the benefit there, of course, is there's thinking in every classroom and therefore the criteria for thinking with creative intent or going through the creative process is transferable. So we would assess the degree to which a student has engaged their curiosities and passions. We would assess the degree to which a student can synthesize and imagine possibilities. We would assess the degree to which the student thoughtfully settles on a course of action. We would assess the degree to which the student has sought input from others who are possibly more expert than them. And we would assess the degree to which uh, the student was able to move from concept to reality. So it's all about the process. Uh, to quote the late, great Grant Wiggins, and Jay and I just talked about Grant Wiggins, uh, when it comes to the question of assessing creativity, he said, yes, you can. And yes, you should. Assess creative and innovative thinkers so that our students can become that and to ensure that we are putting our money where our mouths are. Okay, if we want to claim that we are developing creative thinkers for the 21st century, then we have to assess it if we're going to claim that we're developing it. Assess it in a non-conventional manner, sure, but we have to assess it nonetheless. That's all we have time for. Remember to follow the podcast Twitter account for updates at Tom Shimmer Pod. My personal handle is at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, lots of social media uh, connections there. Please email your questions for Assessment Corner 
or suggestions uh, to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel. Uh, I'm going to start adding some new stuff there, including the video versions of some of the Don't At Me content. Last week's uh, Learning Loss Illusion content has been posted there, so there's a video version of that. So again, I hope you'll check it out. Next week, my guest will be Star Saxton. It will definitely be an assessment conversation as Star is a prominent advocate for reimagining our assessment routines and culture. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially in Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like what you're hearing and think others would benefit, please spread the word about the podcast to some of your colleagues or through social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 